of course. Good morning, everybody. Today is Saturday, the 7th of May, 2022. My name is Audrey Ann and I'm a compulsive overeater. Please note that the speaker will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the question and answer sessions will not be recorded. I will be hosting today's study and the co-hosts are Sue L and Tammy M. If you have any questions or concerns, please contact myself or any of the co-hosts directly by private message in the chat function. Please make sure to keep your microphone on mute at all times during the workshop. We also ask that you refrain from making use of the chat function, even to message under other attendees privately so that we can be present with each other in the workshop. We ask you to turn off your video if you are exercising, eating, driving, or if you must step away from your screen. I will now turn you over to Harlan, who will open us up with Facebook study. Thanks, Harlan. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. And I'm so happy to see everybody here this morning. And I know I say this a lot, but you honor me by coming. I am so honored. Um, I hope it's as absolutely stunning wherever you are listening to this, whether you're listening in person this morning on May 7th, 2022, or you're listening on a podcast. I hope it's as gorgeous where you are as it is in Arizona right now. It's going to be about 99 degrees or 100 degrees here today. There isn't a cloud in the sky and the humidity is so low, it's shoe size. So it's a beautiful, beautiful day here. I hope it's gorgeous where you are too. We have been talking about the chapter, There is a Solution. And in the reading that we did last week and in the discussion that we did last week, we talked about one of the most insidious parts of this disease, and it is called the mental blank spot. Yes, whoever's messaging me, yes, I got a haircut. Thank you. But anyway, um, the bottom line is we have been talking about the mental blank spot. You know, this disease is very unique. When I have a cold, I wake up or I, I just realize, oh, crap, I have a cold. Oh, crap, I sprained my ankle or oh, whatever it is. But this disease has a characteristic to it that is unique among the diseases of the world. And the disease, that, the characteristic that makes this disease so unique is, it is probably the only disease I know of where one of the symptoms of the disease is it, you don't have a disease. You just keep telling yourself you, nothing's wrong. That the fact that you're overweight or you're underweight or you're exercising obsessively or you're bulimic or there's nothing wrong with that. And it says in the doctor's opinion, our life becomes the only normal one. In other words, to us, what we are doing seems normal and natural because this mental blank spot, once I decide I want to eat M&Ms, I will wrestle in my mind a little bit here and there, and I'll stand in there with my fists up, but eventually my fists go down, my resistance is drawn out of me, and what is it that I'm thinking? I'm just going to have the M&Ms today. Tomorrow, I'll get back on the stick. Tomorrow, everything will be okay. Tomorrow, I'm going to go back on my diet, and that never happens. And this mental blank spot is this built-in forgetter. And as we study in the chapter that we looked at last week, and we see the directions in there, one of the things that we had as a direction 
was to read Appendix 2. And that's where we're going to start this morning. We're going to start on page 567 in the fourth edition, Spiritual Experience. But before we read this very short little appendix, we're going to give a little bit of history. There isn't all that much to give, but I'm going to give you the history of what we have here. The big book came out. It was printed on April the 10th, 1939. And the second edition of the big book was not printed until 1955. So between 1939 and 1955, there were literally thousands and thousands of people that wrote to the wrote to the o, uh, the AA office, not the OA. O, OA hadn't even started yet. OA was still, you know, years and years in the future. They would write in and say, "We're doing everything that you're telling us to do, and we're not having this sudden spiritual experience." So they would write back, and rather than continue to write back all the time, they decided that in 1955, when the second edition came out, they made a change. And what they did was they changed the wording of the 12th step. See, we say, oh, the wording's never been changed. That's not true. They changed the 12th step from spiritual experience, having had a spiritual experience, to having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. So people ask all the time, what is the difference between a spiritual experience and a spiritual awakening? It's one of the most commonly asked questions on vision. It's one of the most commonly asked questions in the question and answer period here and on our weekly meetings that we have coming out of Scottsdale month, Sunday through Friday. So let's answer that question right now. The difference between a spiritual awakening and a spiritual experience is this. A spiritual experience is what Bill had, sudden and profound. He said all of his life that in the town's hospital, the morning of December the 15th, 1934, God came to him and that there was a white light that filled the room. And as the light filled up the room, he felt the presence of God coming in and the urge to drink had left him and it never returned. A spiritual awakening is what I continue to have. Notice I didn't say what I had. I continue to have it because it is still in its developmental stages. What is a spiritual awakening? A spiritual awakening is a gradual, slow to develop process of this constant companionship with my creator, who I choose to call God or Israel. You can choose to call it anything you want. You can call it whatever, the great outdoors, a group of drunks. You can call it whatever it is you want to call it. I'm only sharing with you what works for me, and I'm sharing with you what I refer to it as. Take what you want here, and please 
leave the rest. I don't want to get into a question and answer discussion of why I call God this or why I believe this. If you're agnostic, if you're an agnostic, if you're an atheist, whatever it is, all that's required is a willingness to believe that there is a power greater than yourself. So I am not here to tell you what to believe, how to believe, or who or what to believe in. That is not my job, and I will not assume that role ever, especially when we get to chapter four. But this, this appendix was written by Bill to explain the difference between the spiritual awakening and the spiritual experience that we are going to have. Very, very important. So since the big book has instructed us to do so, let's go to page 567. And we're going to whip through this rather quickly, because I've got a lot of material that we want to talk about today. I've got stuff on Roland and Dr. Jung. And then I've got letters between Dr. Jung and Bill Wilson that were written in 1961 that I hope we'll get a chance to read to you today as well. Lots of stuff on the agenda. Okay, page 567, appendix two, spiritual experience. The terms spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which upon careful reading, and how many of us do careful reading, huh? shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. And this concept of change is going to be something that we're going to talk about when we talk about the meeting between Roland and Dr. Jung. And what we need to have is a profound change and that spiritual experience or spiritual awakening will bring about a change in our personality, our attitudes and behaviors so as to dispel the urge to drink or compulsively overeat or drug or gamble or whatever it is that you're into. Yet it is true, back to the here, yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. And the reason that we got that idea is because that form of spiritual awakening, or excuse me, experience is really the only one that's described in the book. Now he's telling us it can happen slower and that it can happen much over, uh, over a period of time as we develop. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Fitz Mayo, Bill Wilson, Though it is, was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God consciousness followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. My spiritual awakening happens as we speak. It started happening many years ago and it continues to happen as I sit here in 2022. And I have a feeling that this is never going to be a done deal because the minute it's a done deal, I'm dead. 
that this is something that metamorphosizes and grows as I age, as things go on, as we change, as life events come into play, these things will have different meaning. I have a different concept of God, of life, of everything today than I had 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 60 years ago life changes. I'm about to have another birthday. So that means another trip around the sun. That means more experiences with which to build on more experiences, some of them good, some of them very painful, all of them, ex all of them uh, educational. Every one of them is educational in nature from stubbing my toe in the middle of the night to whatever. They are all part of what makes me, me, and what makes you, you. And that's a beautiful thing. Among our rapid, I'm still on 567, last paragraph. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Here he goes. And most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety. How do you get an educational variety? By doing exactly what we're doing right now, by learning, by sponsoring, by going to meetings, by attending uh, conventions, by coming to big book studies in Los Angeles, the third, fourth, and fifth of June. See, I, you knew I'd get a plug in for that, right? The third, fourth, and fifth of June. Come to Los Angeles. We're going to learn together. We're going to hug each other. We're going to cry together. We're going to laugh together. We're going to have a good time and we're going to get some recovery there. So come on if you can. It's the third, fourth, and fifth of June this year. The first time we're going to come out on the road live and in person in over two flipping years. I hope you're going to be there. But the educational variety comes from listening to podcasts going to meetings, talking on the phone to other people. You guys are my teachers. You guys teach me more than I ever learned in any university, in any grammar school. Since green school back in 1959, Mrs. Gieberman, my kindergarten teacher, when we were sitting at the circle, taught me some things. And Miss Armstrong, my first grade teacher, they taught us how to read and they taught us basically how to write. But since then, you guys have taught me more than I ever learned in any building, in any city, anywhere on earth. You guys are my teachers. Because they develop slowly over a period of time, quite often friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. Many, many times we go through life and it is the objectivity of those around us that brings us into a new reality. I was working steps. And I've told this story before. I'll try to give you the short version. I was very, very frustrated because I remember I was, was this took place in, in Chicago. I had lost 200 pounds. Let me say that again, because I need to hear myself say it. I have lost, I lost 200 pounds and I was still a 500 pound man. And I was walking 
down Devon Avenue in Chicago and somebody said something to me very, very rude. And I was very upset by it, very upset. And here I was with tears in my eyes and I'm thinking, God, I'm doing everything you are telling me to do. I am going to eight meetings a week. Now you got to remember, this was back in the days, way before, way before the pandemic. So for me to go to eight meetings a week, I had to get in the car and go to those meetings. I had lost 200 pounds and I'm still a 500 pound man. And my friends rallied around me, not OA friends, not people in OA. And they said, but you are a completely different human being than you were a while ago. You are a completely different person. There's very little except for your, maybe your social security number and the fact that you graduated Mather in 1972, graduated green school from sixth grade at a certain point. But the bottom line is other than that, you, and you graduated eighth grade from Clinton school in 1968, other than that, any similarity is purely coincidental. And that made me feel a little bit better. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life. Now let's expand on that for just a short period of time. My reaction to life is completely different than it was. What was my reaction to life? Self-pity, anger, fear, food. Self-pity, anger, fear, food. Self-pity, anger, fear, food. Now it's anger, selfishness, step 10. Anger, fear, selfishness, step 10. Anger, fear, selfishness, step 10. That's a completely different set of reactions. M&Ms were my salvation. I fought it for a while. I tried not to eat them, especially at the end. I tried not to eat the peanut covered m Obviously, these are not Jewish people buying the other M&Ms, obviously. Why would you buy M&Ms without peanuts when you could buy them with peanuts. Obviously, these are crazy people. I don't get it. But anyway, that set aside, okay. Obviously, M&Ms with peanuts in the yellow bag, if you're confused, is the salvate, is my reaction, right? Or Kit Kats or $100,000 bars. Now my reaction is discuss it with someone immediately. Make amends if we've harmed anyone turn my thoughts to someone I can help. That is a completely different set of reactions. One set of reaction is immediate and effortless. The other reaction, the one where I work the steps, takes some effort, not a great deal of effort, but it takes some effort. But instead of consequences, I have miracles beyond my wildest imagination. Doctors have been writing my death certificate for decades, decades, doctors have been writing my death certificate. I'm going to be 68 years old here in just a couple of weeks. If I make it, even if I don't, even if I drop dead tonight, I made it to 67. I guarantee you there are thousands of people that knew me, hundreds of people that knew me that would have bet money that I would have never lived 
to see 67 years of age. And yet I'm already 67 and almost 68. Okay, let's continue. That such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself. My broken brain cannot fix my broken brain. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. Abstinence does not treat this disease. That's why when we run around saying abstinence is the most important thing in my life without exception, speak for yourself, not me. Abstinence is vital to my recovery, vital to my survival. No question. I'm not disputing that. That's, that's an easy one. But the truth of the matter is abstinence is not the most important thing in my life without exception. My relationship with God, the condition of my spiritual life is the most important thing because it is therein that treats the illness. Abstinence does not treat this illness. A man of 30 was doing a great deal of spree drinking. He decided he wasn't going to drink anymore until he was successful in business. For 25 years, he remained bone dry. He pulled out his carpet slippers in a bottle, and within four years, he was dead. Did sobriety treat his illness? No. Did sobriety stop the progressive nature of his illness? No. Did sobriety do much for him? No. I mean, it kept him sober, obviously. I mean, beyond the obvious, but it doesn't treat the illness. With few exceptions, our members find what they, that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource, which they presently identify with their own conception of a power, capitalized, greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of a power, capitalized, greater than ourselves, is the essence of spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. And I develop more God consciousness as I live my life. God is more and more a part of my life as I live it going forward. Now, I am not the kind of person that walks down the street going, hey, God, what's going on? Think the Cubs are going to win today? Hey, nice job, God. Wow, what a beautiful day. Wow, what a beautiful dog or cat or whatever or baby, whatever. No, I don't do that but I feel that presence with me. I truly do. And that didn't come by wanting it or needing it. It comes by working toward it. And how do you work toward that? By working with other people, by giving of yourself, by giving service to the, to the organization. Sponsoring is the key. Working with newcomers, making outreach calls, these are all the things, sponsorship being the key to the whole thing. But I work with others. I constantly uh, am out there. And this is very, very important. Most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. What is belligerent? Angry, self-assured, belligerent denial. Open our minds. Let's open our minds to the possibility that there is a loving higher power, that there is a generous higher power. 
Let's not get caught up in history. Let's not get caught up in things that happened generations ago or 100 or 400 or 500 or 1,000 years ago. I don't have explanations as to why kittens die or why puppies die or why the Holocaust or why slavery or why prejudice, why uh, you know Ukraine or whatever. Let's not get into outside issues, but these are horrible things. But God created human beings with free will, and some people use that free will to persecute and hurt and kill other people. They use their free will horribly, and God was crying too. God was crying right with you. God felt the pain of all of this. And there are many, many things in this world to which we have no explanation. There are 147 people here right now. Some of you have been raped. Some of you have been molested. Some of you have been abandoned. Some of you have known racial prejudice or prejudice because of, of your, of your uh, preference of, or prejudice because of just whatever. And on behalf of the human race, I am sorry. I am very, very sorry. That's a horrible thing. And the issues are in the tissues by now. And I understand that. I am the child of a man who was the sole survivor of an extended family of 40 people who were murdered and obliterated off the face of the earth for no reason other than their faith. I am the man's only child. I am the sole survivor of the sole survivor. He had nightmares and he had trauma throughout his life. Thousands of sleepless nights crying himself to sleep because of what he had seen with his own eyes. I get it. I totally get it. But we have to at some point say, is this the hill that I want to die on? I can either live with this disease or die from this disease. I can die with it or die from it. Dying with it means I have it, but I'm in recovery and I die. Dying from the disease is ugly and hideous. And I can't turn my back on God just because of some injustices years and years and years ago. Even if they were done to me, is this the hill that I want to die on? At some point, I have to leave retribution to God Almighty. At some point, I have to say, I'm going to get a new God that wouldn't have let that happen. It's as easy as choosing a new God. So let's continue. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. Now, some of you come out of the how programs. How, H-O-W, honest, open-minded, willing. Fred Schneider was the one that started the how program. He's dead. He's been dead a long time. We had Fred Schneider and he started how, O-A how. And everything that you see with these written assignments and these questions, that came from Fred. Fred was a school teacher in Brooklyn 
Brooklyn, New York. And he did what teachers do. He developed a curriculum so that we would learn the program better. He developed a curriculum. And what you see in terms of these questions and these uh, assignments, things like that, that's all from Fred. But the reason I'm talking about Fred is when he was looking for a name for this, he looked at this and he said, willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness. And he switched it around and made how out of it, H-O-W. And that's where the how programs get their name. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. The principle is contempt prior to investigation. And this quote is erroneously quoted by Herbert Spencer. William Shaberg in the writing of the big book proves that, that Herbert Spencer never said that or wrote that or thought that or anything, but for some reason, I don't know if it was Bill Wilson or somebody, they thought that this quote came from Herbert Spencer and Shaberg, who wrote the writing of the big book says it did not. I don't know who's right, but I don't care. It doesn't matter. The quote is still a very, very good one. And that is that we don't want, we don't want to be kept in everlasting ignorance by contempt prior to investigation. This is appendix two. Let's go back now to page uh, 26. I'll give you a minute to get to page 26. Okay, now, Roland Hazard was talked about when we were doing Bill's story. If you remember, if you need a review, listen to my podcast on Bill's story. And on page eight, we talk about Roland Hazard. But just to bring you back up to speed, so you remember what we're talking about here, for thousands and thousands of years, there was no solution. This was thought of as a lack of discipline, lack of willpower, lack of character, stupidity, insanity. And for thousands of years, alcoholics had a very, very horrible go of it. They were in asylums. They were in jails. They were buried. They were dead. They were ostracized. They were thought of as being too irresponsible to take care of their families, too stupid to know to only have one or two drinks and stop. Well, we know that that's not possible. There was no solution for this. Women alcoholics had it much harder than the male alcoholics, much harder. A male alcoholic was considered to be crazy, weak, stupid, idiotic. Women alcoholics were whores, sluts, loose women, fallen women, Many of them were lobotomized against their will, sterilized against their will, institutionalized against their will, kept as prisoners in asylums against their will, as men were too. But the women had it much, much harder. And for thousands of years, there was nowhere to go and there was no remedy known to mankind. 
Roland Hazard was an alcoholic. He was the son of very, very wealthy industrialists in Rhode Island. They owned a company called Burlington Mills. And if you've ever walked on carpeting in your life, or you have carpeting and some furniture, you are walking on Burlington carpeting. That's the company that they own. They also were major stockholders in a company that is traded today on the New York Stock Exchange, and it's called Allied Chemical. And the hazards were extremely wealthy people. And their wayward alcoholic son, Roland, Roland III, he was an alcoholic who at one time had himself sequestered on a Caribbean island. And the quartermaster was instructed not to bring him any liquor. And in about 1928, 29, he was completely dry because he stayed on the island and he couldn't get any liquor. He gets off the island, figures he's cured, goes back to Miami, and he's drunk within a very, very short period of time. He, like the man of 30, he, like others, including me, believed that because of his long period of sobriety, that it would somehow protect him from the ravages of this disease. And we know that it did not. He's drunk in a very short period of time. Here comes 1930, 31. He has money. Now in its infancy at this time was the art of psychiatry. See, we think of psychiatry as being around a long, long time. That is not true. Psychiatry is about not even a hundred, well, it's about a hundred years old as we sit here today, maybe a little less than a hundred years, maybe it's in its nineties. And the most preeminent psychiatrist in the world at that time was a guy by the name of Sigmund Freud. And Roland sought out the services of Sigmund Freud. Freud wasn't taking on any new patients, let alone a guy whose biggest complaint was alcoholism or drinking too much. They didn't even use the word alcoholism. He wasn't going to take them. So he says, who's the number two man? He says, Adler. And Adler wasn't going to take him or didn't take him. And he ended up in Geneva, Switzerland, under the care in 1931 of Carl Jung, J-U-N-G, Carl Jung. And he goes to Jung and he stays with Jung from 31 to 32. He is in, an, he is in a treatment center, hospital kind of thing. And Jung comes and psychoanalyzes him, you know, every week maybe twice a week. And Jung and Roland are working together for a year. And because Roland couldn't get at liquor, he remains bone dry, bone dry for a year. At the end of the year, Jung says to Roland, uh, I'd like to prescribe that you have a Valium deficiency and keep you here and keep sucking money out of you. But I'm not going to do that. You're free to go you're free to go back to the States and go live your life. Roland Hazard goes back 
And from Geneva, Switzerland, the first stop in his trip back to the States is Paris, France. He gets to Paris. And who does he run into in Paris? Very, very dear friends of his, of his parents. Very dear friends of his parents. And they celebrate and they say, Roland, my boy, what are you doing here in France? And he says to them that he was there to see Jung and that he was drinking too much, but now he's okay. So they celebrate by popping open a bottle of champagne. They celebrate his sobriety with a bottle of France's top champagne. Within a very short period of time, Roland is so incapacitated, he cannot walk. He re-triggers the allergy. His period of sobriety does nothing to protect him. And he is drunk to the point where he can't even walk. He goes back to Dr. Jung. He goes back to Geneva, back to Jung, and says to Dr. Jung, what the hell happened to me? I can't understand what is going on here. Why does this keep happening to me? Let's go to page 26. And let's look in on the conversation between Dr. Jung and Roland Hazard that took place when Roland came back to Switzerland after he got drunk in Paris. Page 26. A certain American businessman had ability, good sense, and high character. For years, he had floundered from one sanitarium to another. He had consulted the best-known American psychiatrists, Adler and Freud. Then he had gone to Europe, Dr. Jung, placing himself in the care of a celebrated physician, the psychiatrist, Dr. Jung, who prescribed for him. Though experience had made him skeptical, he finished his treatment with unusual confidence. His physical and mental condition were unusually good. Above all, he believed he had acquired such a profound knowledge of the inner workings of his mind and its hidden springs that relapse was unthinkable. Nevertheless, he was drunk in a short time. More baffling still, he could not give him, he could give himself no satisfactory explanation for his fall. And how many of us have had periods of dieting with group support? We've lost a lot of weight. People are starting to comment, you're getting too thin or you're getting whatever. And we've lost an incredible amount of weight. And we decide, well, maybe we can just have a little ice cream because it's my birthday. Maybe we can just have a little cake because it's a wedding. Maybe we can whatever, fill in the blanks. Maybe we can eat this because it's this. And how many of us found ourselves not only gaining the weight that we lost back, but more and more weight, way beyond where we had ever weighed before. That illustrates the progressive nature of the disease. The disease is permanent. The disease is progressive. The disease, if untreated, is fatal. So he is illustrating for you what is going on. Let's continue. So he returned to this doctor whom he admired and asked him point blank 
why he could not recover. He wished above all things to regain self-control. He seemed quite rational and well-balanced with respect to other problems, yet he had no control whatever over alcohol. Why was this? Why is this? Because where alcohol is concerned, it says on page seven, the will is amazingly weakened. Why is that? Because alcohol, boys and girls, or food in our case, is doing something for us that is irresistible to the brain. And what is food doing for me that is irresistible to the brain? It is giving me the effect. What is the effect? The effect is the sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly by eating the food. There is something about eating a piece of pizza that for me gives me an almost psychotic delusionary response. For about nine seconds, I look just like Sean Connery in 007's Goldfinger. For about nine seconds, I'm a famous rock star. For about nine seconds, I'm the first baseman of the Cubs or the quarterback of the Bears. For about nine seconds, all the girls want to be with me and all the girls want to dance with me and kiss me and hug me and all this other stuff. For about nine seconds, it's bliss. It's euphoria. It's orgasmic. And there's nothing like it in the world. That is what the food does for me. But unfortunately, the food stopped working decades ago. Now, the food does more to me than it ever could for me. But my brain doesn't understand that because of the mental blank spot. The mental twist says, eat the food. The blank spot eradicates memories of the consequences of the eating. And all I can see is me want pizza, me want ice cream, me want donuts, me want whatever, because those things become irresistible to me, not because of what they do to me, but because of what they momentarily do for me. And until I find something else that will do that for me, I will continue to go to the food. And what is the only substitute we have? the spiritual awakening as a result of the steps so that I already feel better. So the urge to eat these things is simply not there. We have to find a substitute that is better than the food, more long lasting than the food, more able to give us a life than the food, something that is better. You never trade down. We are trading up. Let's see where that comes from. He begged the doctor to tell him the whole truth and he got it. Now, if he had gone to Freud or Adler, he wouldn't have gotten this truth. Is it odd or is it God that he got to Jung rather than Freud or Adler? I think it's God. 
Had he gone to Freud or Adler, we'd be sitting around psychoanalyzing ourselves. We'd be sitting around talking about birth order. We'd be sitting around talking about, do we want to have sex with our mother? We'd be sitting around talking about other things other than affecting a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. So thank God he got to Jung. I'm not disparaging Adler and, and Freud. They're wonderful. They're fantastic. But they couldn't give Roland the information that we need today. Let's continue. In the doctor's judgment, he was utterly hopeless. What's the first step? We are powerless over, God, over food and our lives unmanageable. He could never regain his position in society that he would have to place himself under lock and key or hire a bodyguard if he expected to live long. That was the great physician's opinion. Why was it his opinion? He had treated hundreds of addicted people and known throughout history in books, it's chronicled that there's nothing that can be done. The prevailing attitude in medicine for thousands of years is nothing can be done with these people. You might as well throw them off a damn cliff now and get it over with because there's nothing that can be done for these people. You cannot heal, cure, fix, aid, relieve an alcoholic. There's nothing that can be done. So this is what Dr. Jung was going by. Let's continue. But the man, this man still lives and is a free man. He does not need a bodyguard, nor is he confined. He can go anywhere on this earth where other free men may go without disaster, provided he remains willing to maintain a certain simple attitude. What is that attitude? That attitude is, is that no matter where I go, no matter what I do, I have to put God first. I have to talk to other people. I have to help other people. I have to be involved in service. I have to do whatever it takes so that I can recover too. And the actions are best illustrated by Bill Wilson in Akron, Ohio, at the Mayflower Hotel. Bill knew that without talking to another alcoholic, he was going to drink again, it was a certainty. So he sought out another alcoholic. You hear me say this all the time. This is not a program for people who need it. It's not a program for people who want it. It's a program for people who do it. What are you willing to do? What am I willing to do? And we've got to show that to God every single day. There's no days off around here. Every single day is a day when we must bring God's will into all of our activities. Top of 27, some of our alcoholic readers may think they can do without spiritual help. Let us tell you the rest of the conversation our friend had with his doctor. Now, I want you to listen as we read through here the fact that Jung was the only one of Adler, Freud, and Jung that would have told Roland this because he believed in the power of the spiritual transformation where they really didn't. And let's see how many times the concept of change is introduced into this conversation. And if you're on the struggle bus, if you're new, if you're not new, and you are 
thinking about doing some eating or, or, or maybe you've done a little eating here and there, let's take a look at what must change. And that is everything. And we're going to see how many times I'll point them out. You can count them. How many times does Dr. Jung point out the concept of change to his patient, Roland Hazard? Let's take a look. The doctor said, <clears throat> excuse me, you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic, and that means he is an alcoholic. I have never seen one single case recover where that state of mind exists existed to the extent that it does in you. In other words, Dr. Jung never saw anyone recover. Our friend felt as though the gates of hell had closed on him with a clang. So here he is with all his money and all his good looks and all his future out in front of him and everything that life promised. And here's a doctor the third most prominent psychiatrist in the world. And the guy is telling me I'm dead man walking. Doctors have been looking at me in the face and yelling at my mother and yelling at my father and screaming at me from the time I was a child. You're going to die. You're going to die. You're not going to live long. You're not going to have a life. God was more powerful. It's been a painful journey. It's been a hell of a journey. I wouldn't wish it on you, but here I am. And what I can tell you is I survived by the grace of God and this program and the people in it that make up the fellowship. I am here because of God's mercy and grace. I am here because of the love and the kindness of the people in this group called Overeaters Anonymous. Some living, some dead, all held my hand when life was too much for me to bear. All were there for me. He said to the doctor, is there no exception? He's begging Dr. Jung and Dr. Jung says to him, yes replied the doctor. Here's a ray of hope. What's that comedy routine? There's a there's only there's there's not even a one in a million chance that she would go out with you. Oh, one in a million? So there's a chance. So Dr. Jung says to Roland, "Yes, there is. Exceptions to cases such as yours have been occurring since early times. Here and there, once in a while, wait a minute, wait, yeah, okay. Here and there, once in a while, alcoholics have had what are called vital spiritual experiences, change. To me, these occurrences are phenomena. Why did he call it a phenomena? He didn't understand it himself. They appear to be in the nature of huge emotional displacements, change, and rearrangements, change. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men are suddenly cast to one side, change, and a completely new set of conceptions, change, and motives, change, begin to dominate them. In fact, I have been trying to produce some, some such emotional rearrangement, change, within you. With many individuals, the methods which I employed are successful. 
I have never been successful with an alcoholic of your description. And again, they want us to read Appendix 2, which we've already done. So there's, there's a call here from Jung. We have to be willing to change. Can we change ourselves? No. Can a broken brain fix a broken brain? No. Can I just make a decision to change? Good luck. Because I've made that decision 27,341 times that I'm never going to do this again. And there I am doing it again. But when God becomes operative or a power greater than yourself becomes operative or whatever it is you are willing to believe in becomes operative, change gets affected. And I do not feel the urge to overeat today. I do not feel the urge to write bad checks today. I do not feel the urge to lie when the truth would serve me better. I do not feel the urge to say things that are going to hurt other people. I do not feel the urge to burn my life to the ground. And that was what was happening. I was burning my life to the ground because of this disease. And I was going scorched earth on myself, burning every bridge, lying, stealing, manipulating, living a life that I was never proud of. I hold my head high today. Am I a great man? No. Am I the president or am I a statesman? No but I'm an honest, decent person. I'm an honest, decent human being. And I like me today for the first time in my life, I can honestly say to you, I like who I see in the mirror. I do good things every day. And the love of self is not a narcissistic thing. It's an absence of hate. It's the absence of me doing things on a daily basis that made me ashamed of myself. The lies that I told, the, the, the mirror doesn't bear a person that I would rather see dead. It bears the likeness of a person that I want to live. And the fact that I want to live is worth giving up the food and working the program alone. That's where I fly. That's where I live. That's where things propel me. And this is the essence of life for me, is the desire to not do things that shame me, hurt me, degradate me, and burn my life to the ground. I don't care if you're rich or poor. I don't care if you're black or white, green or yellow, gay, straight, Jewish, Protestant, Catholic, Buddhist, Muslim. I don't care what you are. You have the right to like yourself. You have the right to walk through the earth and walk around and say no when you mean no and yes when you mean yes and do the things that are consistent with being your own friend, not working against yourself. That is something I hope that each and every one of you will taste before the final curtain goes down. That's freedom. And that didn't get into my life because of a decision I made other than to work the program. It didn't come here because I 
subscribed to a magazine or or whatever. It didn't come because I may, I'm going to be okay from now on. That never worked for me. I have to work the steps. I have to help people on a daily basis that I don't want to necessarily be bothered by. I would rather be isolated and left alone and watching, you know, uh, the Cubs or whatever it is I want to do. No, I have to get out and work and I have to do what I have to do. And when I do those things, when I catch a glimpse of myself in a store window, I don't vomit in my mouth. I don't vomit in my mouth when I see myself today. That's freedom. That's what I wish for every one of you to see the beauty in your own self, not in a narcissistic way, not in a crazy ego-driven way, not in a, not in a, a, a sociopathic way, in a way that's pure and good and wholesome. To understand you're no better or no worse than the people around you is freedom. I always was better than you or worse than you. I couldn't look at you as a human being. I couldn't do it. Now I can. I understand that every human being on the face of the earth is going through some form of hell. And that nobody's better than me. Nobody's worse than me. God, I spent my whole life judging and putting people in categories and, 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 and taking you know, the assessment of all this and living a life that wasn't worth living. Dr. Jung is the, is the catalyst of the entire process that brings us recovery today. Let's go another paragraph. Damn it. I'm, uh, I should have. I should have shut up more and move faster because now there's two minutes left and I'm not going to get to those. We will get to the letters next week. I promise you, I will read for you the 1961 letters between Bill Wilson and Carl Jung. I promise. Let's just do one more paragraph. Upon hearing this, our friend was somewhat relieved for he reflected that after all, he was a good church member. Ah, that's not going to be what we're looking for here. Not that church is bad, not that synagogue is bad, but we need a spiritual life to go with that. We need a spiritual life. We're not looking at a religious life. We're, what's the difference? Well, the spiritual means I'm going to have to go out and help other people. Now, maybe you say, well, I make meals at the church or I pack lunches for uh, the homeless at the church. That's not what we're looking for. We're, that, those are great things. Those are things to be admired. Good, good for you. That's fantastic. We need you to help the next alcoholic. We need you to help the next alcoholic because nothing ensures immunity from drinking like intensive work with other alcoholics. Let's finish the paragraph and then I'll turn it back over to whoever's doing the newcomers. This hope, however, was destroyed by the doctors telling him that while his religious convictions were very good, in his case, they did not spell the necessary vital spiritual experience. Change. Once again, change. So we're going to pick this up next week on page 28. I'm just going to write down big book. Now, before I turn it over, I want to just say a few things. Five, 
7 and 7, 14, okay, that much math I can do. Page 28 here. Okay, now before I turn it over, um, if you asked a question last week, please step back and allow 